Welcome back, everyone, to Drunk Bible Study Bonus Edition for Ezekiel 21 and 22. There were some interesting things in these two chapters. First, I'm going to talk about that whole, you know, killing the righteous and the wicked, like just killing everyone. What the heck is up with that? Dedeker's going to talk some about divination, and Jace is going to round us off with some jars of clay. There are, there's these Ooh. jars, and they're full of clay, or they're made out of clay. I don't know. <laughs> So, something about that. It's a song. I'm assuming there's a that's, song that's involved. That's an interesting question. I, yeah. Yeah. There will be a song. Yes. Maybe we can dive into that. Yeah. Yes. So, okay, just to recap a bit, um, and this is from the NIV, but I'm I'm just going to recap what happened in Ezekiel 21, which is what I read. Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem, preach against the holy places and prophecy against the land of Israel, and say that the land of Israel Thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you and I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both righteous and wicked from you because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Therefore, my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh from south to north that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath and it shall not return anymore. Whoa. Okay. Right. Yeah. We remember that with this one, yep. two, three times the sword lady. Yeah. Yes, exactly. So there's a <laughs> as always, there's a lot of commentary out there. I yeah. did find an interesting bit of commentary in enduringword.com that says accordingly, the statement describes the indiscriminate nature of war which recognizes only two parties, victors and the victims. There is no concern to subdivide the latter, particularly according to that nation's definitions of righteous and wicked. Okay, sure, sure. I mean, in this instance, Yahweh is very distinctly saying, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I'm going to kill all y'all, regardless of who's good and who's bad. That is an interesting point, though, because Yahweh says, I'm going to do it, but has other times said, I'm going to do this by having everyone invade you and capture you. Mm -hmm. So I guess in that way, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, the very next commentary says, the vision of that glittering, furbished, active sword is indeed a terrible one, but it is the sword of Jehovah. Observe how that fact is kept in mind. So that's interesting. Huh. Okay. Yeah, just, that they talk about that. I'm just thinking about Furbies again. Furbies. Yeah. yeah, just all roads lead back to the Furby. The, the Furby's sword. What if that's actually what he was saying was the Furby's sword? <laughs> oh, no. And that just for years, it was mistranslated because they didn't know what a Furby was yet. But, you know, Yahweh knew because he, you know, can see the future or whatever. So it's like, there's going to be Furbies. They will mess you up. <laughs> yeah. So... This is a seminary project, seminaryministry.org, talking about this whole thing. And it, it discusses some stuff in chapter 20 that I didn't really get out of it. But basically that Ezekiel complains to the Lord asking for defense and he's warning the people and he hears that exiles complaining that the prophet is speaking in parables. Like people are essentially getting mad at Ezekiel and saying that he like makes no sense and stuff. Yeah, that came up last week. I think we yes. read a verse where Ezekiel mentioned that. He's like, people keep saying I'm talking nonsense. Yeah, exactly. And so apparently that leads into chapter 21. Uh, and okay. the Lord is making plain what the exiles complained was too hard to understand. 
and essentially oh. just that, yeah, this judgment is coming against Jerusalem and and all the southern kingdom. So I see. So yeah. It's like, you think this is confusing? Let me spell it out for you. Exactly. There will be swords. Yes. They will be unshield. All of you will die. <laughs> yeah, essentially, cool, yeah. Cool, cool. It, it just says that he's designed this judgment to remove all Jews from the land, both the righteous and the wicked, from the south to the north. Mm-hmm. There will be no exceptions, and the sword won't be placed in the sheath, which means the Lord won't stop short of completing the total judgment he's promised. So there's a, you know, there's a lot in here, but it basically talks about how I guess Jesus allowed uh, Judas to to do some stuff. Oh, here we go. Oh, sorry, back I just to... tuned out as soon as you said anything yeah. about. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, but it's essentially saying that like the Lord is making all of this happen, and so He is mm. able to create every single thing that occurs, and even if like bad people are bad out there, like He's responsible for it, I guess. And he's responsible for the good and the bad. I don't know. There's a lot going on. Which it's it's like, as I've said before, it's as though he's creating problems just to be able to fix them or to, you know, enact his insane rage upon everybody. I, I, I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. If I were a benevolent figure, I feel like I'd just want puppies and rainbows and maybe <laughs> Pegasus and... Like fluffy things to be in my lap at all but times. But you might get bored by that after a while, mm. you know. Well, it feels like God got bored immediately, is what I'm saying. <laughs> like just immediately. It also talks uh-huh. in here a little bit about like how people might think that Satan was involved in some of this, and that hmm. it's not God; it's actually Satan. But it makes this argument essentially that God is also sort of responsible for Satan or he's responsible for allowing Satan to be able to do certain things. Yeah, I think this brings us back around to a question that we've grappled with in bonus episodes before, which is a question that many people have grappled with, which is the whole, you know, if it's a kind of benevolent God, why does he allow bad things to happen? And if he's taking responsibility for being in control of all things, why choose for bad things to happen? Yeah. Right. That is the question. Yeah, and that's that's the whole field of theology, right? Is those debates like you've brought up so well, Emily, right? This whole thing of like, well, if if we're saying that God literally controls every single thing that happens, then it's yeah. all God's fault too, the good and the bad. So what gives? And then trying to come up with explanations or it's like, well, maybe he doesn't have control over every little thing because we have free will and we get to do our thing. Or there's, you know, there's like lots of different ways people will approach it being like, if we imagine this is the setup, because none of us really know. Yeah. If we imagine these are the rules of how it works, how does that work? What does that mean for us? Or if we say these are the rules, what does that mean? How does that change who God is, who we are, all that kind of stuff? And you, you just, yeah. you're ready for seminary, Emily. I guess. I mean, this says right here, the Lord can harness evil to do his bidding and then turn around and judge that vessel for that evil. So God can allow Satan to use Judas to betray Christ and he, and then he can Jeez, turn around. Spoilers. Stop reading spoilers. Well, I, I know that whole thing. But it's well, but, but my, my point though, Em, is yeah. that this person writing this, and this is what you'll find in like all the writing, yeah. they're stating those things as if those are the facts that they're then basing the rest of their argument off of. Sure. And that's the part that no one agrees on because it's not spelled out for us. No. Right? 
None of that's clear. Is that the point, though? Is it like it's not spelled out because you're supposed to like finger it out for yourself? <laughs> Maybe. Or something. Yeah, cool. That's, okay. There's a lot, of, a lot of ways you could approach it, right? Thanks, I hate it. Okay. <laughs> but I just, I guess I just want to bring that up to like caution that, that you know, the way I was brought up, there were like certain things you were taught where like these are the facts about how God works and like what kind of powers he has and doesn't have, mm-hmm. how he's different now from how he used to be, those sorts of things. And all of those were purely based on whoever taught me those things mm-hmm. and not actually something that's, you know, we don't have the Silmarillion for the mm. Bible that like really breaks down detailed steps of the histories of of what happened. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Well, Indeed. that's what I got. How about you too? Yeah, you want to hear about some wild divination practices? Let's do it. Yeah, so specifically there was this line, verse 21 in chapter 21. But the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads to use divination. He shakes the arrows, he consults the images, he looks at the liver. Now in our version, it says he like he consults the teraphim. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to go through each of those in turns. Let's start with shake and oh, arrows. The god dice. Don't forget the god dice. Oh, the god. oh yeah. <laughs> I forgot about yeah, the god yeah. dice. <laughs> well, this is kind of like god dice. If you were going to mm. create some way to divine the future or your best path using arrows, what would you do? Using arrows, uh, yeah, like, yeah, like the ones you would shoot. Yes, yes, that, that kind of a sitch. Yeah, that kind of a sitch. I, uh, um, I mean, like if you needed to make a decision, so you, you know, you were going to flip a yeah. coin, but instead of a coin, you have a quiver full of arrows. What would you do? <laughs> well, okay, in this example, he's trying to decide which path to go down. Right, mm-hmm. I would take mm-hmm. the arrow and I would spin it in the air. You know, so it's like spinning perpendicular to the, or like parallel with the ground, uh-huh. spinning around and around, and then whichever direction it's pointed most toward. So kind of like spin the bottle. Like spin the bottle, but spin the road. Yes. Spin the arrow. <laughs> I say. Down the road. <laughs> yeah. okay. okay. What would you do, Emily? What? I, I don't even know what the question is. Wait, we're, it, <laughs> say it again? What? <laughs> so Emily. I'm spinning. <laughs> we're trying to make a decision together. Yeah. We're trying to decide, do we go to Sun Cafe? Uh-huh. Wait, no. Sorry. Sun Cafe is always going to win because you work there. Okay. Do we go to, I don't know, vegan restaurant A or vegan restaurant B? They're both alike in dignity. We don't know which one to go to. And we think, oh, we'll just flip a coin and let fate decide. But we sure. don't have a coin. But what we do have is a quiver full of arrows. I see. How might you adapt the arrows to be a divination tool for us? That's a great question. It would be easier if the restaurants were really close to each other and then I shot an arrow <laughs> poorly. Oh, okay. okay. And tried to see how close <laughs> or how far away the arrow came to said restaurant or, or whatever okay. restaurant. It's like whatever okay. restaurant it came closer to... That's the restaurant that we go to. That's pretty good. And that's actually okay. closest to probably what Nebuchadnezzar did okay. in this <laughs> well, <good>. instance. <laughs> Excellent. There's a couple different theories about what this okay. arrow divination may have been. You know, one of the theories is that, yeah, he either tossed some arrows into the air or shot one into the air and then mm-hmm. whichever side they fell closest to, that was the road that we take. Mm-hmm. Um there's another theory that actually the arrows would have the names of different cities inscribed on them, and then they'd be mixed up in the quiver, and then it's like drawing straws. Then whichever one you draw, that's the city that we go after. Okay. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I also found this interesting 
apparently this is like an Arabian practice using divination by arrows where, so I'm just going to read to you. Their custom was this. When a man was about to marry a wife or go on a journey or do any business of importance, he put (laughs) three arrows. I love that. He put three arrows into a vessel. Mm. On one was inscribed, my Lord hath commanded me. On another, my Lord hath forbid me. And the third had nothing on it. The third said, ask again later. Yeah, it's a magic eight ball. He made a magic eight ball. Uh, try again. It is, it is a point. very, very early magic eight ball. Oh. yeah. And so to continue reading, if the first he took out had the command upon it, then he proceeded with great alacrity. But if it had the prohibition, he desisted. Mm. And if that which had nothing inscribed on it, he laid it by till one of the other two was taken out. So it was the ask again later. <laughs> so good. Uh, not now. I'm busy. So good. Yes. You know, amazing. This reminds me a little bit of some divination that uh, my my stepmom actually brought to our family. And that's oh. that when you're at a restaurant that has fortune cookies at the end of the meal, mm-hmm. whose fortune is whose, right? That's, yeah. that's a challenge. So her method of divination was you would look at all the cookies as they were set down on the table. You couldn't touch them before this. And you would look at the the, the like V part of the fortune cookie, uh-huh. whoever that was pointing toward. And you would start in order from like, if one's pointing directly at a person, that's theirs. You remove that. And then by process of elimination, it's like which one's pointed closest wow. to the next person. And you'd kind of wow. work out whose fortune belonged to whom. Oh, lovely. Oh, okay. Fascinating. <laughs> Wow. It's very much like the Eros divination. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. (laughs) Let's talk about the Teraphim also. So Mm, Love those. Yeah, what the heck is that? When we came across Teraphim, at first I thought that this was referring to the divination method that the priests would use of like reaching into essentially a bag of runes or casting them around, you know, a bag of different stones. But that's not what they are. But we have encountered Teraphim before in the Bible. So yeah. The rough translation is them being actually idols or, quote, household gods is often how it's interpreted. Okay. And the first place we ran across the teraphim was way back in Genesis. I don't know if you remember this story where Rachel takes the teraphim that belonged to Laban, her father, when her husband Jacob escapes. Right. She hides them and sits on them. And then when Laban comes for them, she claims, oh, I can't come up to greet you because I'm menstruating. Right. And so I got to just sit here. And that's how she hid. Do you remember that story at all, Emily? I think so. Yeah, that's how she hid the idols. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And so from that story, we can kind of think, okay, they must have been little small figures. If they're small enough that she can hide them in a saddlebag and then sit on them. They're probably right. pretty tiny. So nobody can see them. Little yes. action figures. Little God action figures. Cute. Yeah. Now, we, however, we came across another story of the Teraphim. And this was the story from Michal, who was David's first wife. Mm. Way back in First mm-hmm. Samuel. And so this is when David's still on the run from Saul, where basically Michal helps him escape through a window. And then she tricks Saul's men into thinking that a Teraphim that's in her bed is actually David. I don't know if you remember that story oh, either. That's got to be a what? Bigger so that's got to be a big teraphim, yeah. Yes, and so then it's like, okay, maybe it's big enough to be the size of a dude, you know, big <laughs> enough that you could hide it huh. in your bed and throw some people off. So it's going to get weird okay. here. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So of course, there's the theory that like maybe it's just different little sculpted idols of various sizes in perhaps some human-like form. 
Okay. Uh, there is a theory that actually the teraphim were made from the heads of slaughtered firstborn male humans. What? Like essentially, a, yes. And that the heads, Ew. almost like a shrunken head oh. sort of situation. Oh, God. They were shaved off and they were, they were like oh. salted and dried out. They would put a golden plate under the tongue <sighs> and they would mount it on the wall. Oh, my God. Truly salted babies. Truly wow. salted babies. And apparently, during the excavation of Jericho, there was evidence that they used plastered human skulls essentially as cult objects. Yikes. And so they think, looking back to that story of Michal, that seems like maybe that's more legitimate that if she has this dried out human head hanging around, she can maybe shove that in her bed and maybe add some pillows and stuff Yeah, to Do a Ferris Bueller. throw people off. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. It, it, I hope you don't look very closely at it, but geez, <laughs> yikes. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Um, the, later on, uh, when we get to the book of Micah, allegedly Micah also uses teraphim to worship, hmm. indicating that teraphim could also be image, like representing an image of Yahweh as well. This reminds me of... But that's not... Sorry. No, but that's not cool, Go right? Go ahead. Yeah, Yahweh is not into images. No, well, he's not. The Yahweh who wrote this book is not into images, but there's probably different <sighs> subsects that worship Yahweh that are like, no, he's in. He is into images, and maybe he's even still married to Asherah. Whoa! In our approach, Whoa. God forbid. You know. Um, yes. Love it. This reminds me of the movie Gladiator, which I recently rewatched. Oh, he has his little exactly like, his little figurines of his wife and son. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Oh, which I you know, I gotta say, it's not that great of a movie. <laughs> oh, is it not? I've been wanting to revisit it also, but if it's if it doesn't hold up that great, <laughs> I mean, watch it again. I just was kind of like, this one best picture? <laughs> really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was 2000, so. Okay, well, I got, I have All one right. more. Oh, one please. more, which yeah. is hepat, hepatomancy. What? Or haruspex or haro, haruspecy. This is, this is looking at entrails. Oh. To divine oh, cool. the future yeah. or make a decision. Now, okay. specifically, usually at this period, it's specifically looking at the liver of a sheep. Blech. That's why he says, like, he looked at the liver. Hmm. Yes. And now, what's interesting, at least what's really interesting to me, is that there's been a lot of artifacts found, like a lot of Etruscan artifacts, some Babylonian artifacts that are essentially models of sheep's livers. Sheep's. But that have like little guidelines written on them of like, oh, this piece means that. And this... And they're your cheat sheet. Like a it. cheat sheet to your local sheep's liver. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. It's like when you go to like a chiropractor or an acupuncturist and they have that yes. map of all the meridians on the body. Exactly. Mm-hmm. It's exactly like that, but okay. a sheep's yeah. liver. That's cool. Yeah. But I mean, weird. Liver. Okay. <laughs> it's cool slash weird. And this is a practice that lasted all the way up until the Middle Ages. Okay. People did this for a long time. So in mm. Monty Python and the Holy Grail, when he says, tell me again how sheep's bladders can be used to prevent earthquakes, <laughs> that that's oh probably that related. That might be based oh. in something realish. Probably related. Because, yeah. yeah, there's also a practice of, yeah, just opening up various animals to forecast the weather. Boy. Specifically. Boy. Now, this led me, this was not mentioned in the book of Ezekiel, but one of my favorite divination methods that I've ever heard of, I've never tried this, but I, it sounds great, is chiromancy, which is using cheese 
as a divination tool. What? Okay. Yeah. Do you still get to eat the cheese at the end? Because if so, I'm in. I think so. I'm pretty sure you're allowed to eat the cheese because it's based on watching a cheese, how it coagulates, the holes that form in it, the mold patterns that form in it, and using that to determine what your future is or what decision is going to be made. Allegedly, you know, there's also kind of, you know, when you would be in your village and you would you got your curds and you formed a cheese and you're setting it to age, but you would like write in different cheeses, either your different decisions or specifically the example that I've seen come up time and time again is if you're a young maiden, you write the name of different suitors. And depending on which one forms mold first, that indicates this is the one that you should marry and go after. The mold is the good thing. The mold is the good thing. Got it. I mean, with cheese, yeah. the mold is the good yeah. thing. The mold's okay. the thing. I, yeah. This is why I don't eat cheese. <laughs> wow. But I'll take your word for it. Wow. I mean, what can't you divine with, really? Right? I guess you can divine with everything. I feel like I could come up with a way to divine with anything. It just goes to show that as human beings, our brains are so good at wanting to find patterns and also we're just mm. like so terrible at accepting that we're not in control of anything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Very true. Goodness. Oh, gosh. Well, I want to end this episode with talking about some music, talking about Jars of Clay specifically. So, so Emily, you had questions. So Jars of Clay, just to bring you up to speed, and for any of our listeners who did not grow up listening to contemporary Christian rock music, or I guess listeners who are too young, Jars of Clay... They released the song Flood in 1995. So they're, you know, not a new band. However, their last album that they put out, I found out was in 2010. Oh, wow. Quite recently. They even released one. I graduated college. And they've released some other like singles and stuff all the way up through 2013. Huh. No. I, I don't see anything saying that the band's broken up. So they're still doing their thing, which is kind of amazing when you think about it. Are they a rock band? Yeah, so they were... I mean, we're going to listen to a little bit of it in a second. And I think that'll give you oh, a sense. Oh, and let me... We should explain that, the, yeah, the, the reason why we're doing this is because of all the imagery in the psalm. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so so there's this... Well, okay. The, the thing that inspired this is that Dedeker mentioned that psalm by David. He kept talking about, like, being in a flood, being stuck in the mud, in the mire, and, like, wanting to be pulled out, and kind of that imagery. Yeah. So this song was the first single that was released by the band Jars of Clay in 1995. And it was this huge breakout hit in that it got played on both Christian radio and normal rock radio. Oh, oh this is the song? Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I had no idea that it broke this was a the boundaries. Big, big crossover. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. This, this broke boundaries. <laughs> Um, that it it peaked at number 12 on the Billboard Modern Rock Charts, wow. and it stayed in the top 200 for the whole year, for 52 wow. straight weeks. Wow. So this is like a monumental achievement for a Christian rock band to make that kind of a breakthrough hit. It is the only of their songs that ever did that. Um, you know, they've had two platinum albums. Like, they've been a very successful huh. band, generally, specifically just on Christian radio. But this this first song was this big breakout hit. And what's interesting is that the song is called Flood and it keeps talking about this imagery of like rain and a flood. And so I know a lot of us Christian kids listening to it think Noah, right? You think flood, you think Noah. Yeah. But the nothing in the song actually 
references any imagery from Noah and the Ark, really. Hmm. Well, they mentioned 40 days. Uh, you're right. I guess 40 days comes up, which was... Yeah. Yeah. How long they were out there after... Yeah. Was it after seeing the peak of the mountain or before seeing it was 40 days? Before. Like, it was, was yeah, it was it. like 40 days and 40 nights. Mm. Right. But then still longer before they landed. That was just like when they saw mm-hmm. the peak in the distance. Anyway. Wasn't that a Josh Hartnett film? What? Noah's Ark? 40 days Noah? and 40 nights. Oh, 40 days and 40 nights. <laughs> I don't know. It's another good callback. Yeah, 2002. Yeah. Wow. Was I right about the actor? Uh, yes. Wow. Yes. Wait. Well done. Um, yes. Yes, I was. Yes, yes, you are. Yes. I well done. was. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So, so let me play you just a little bit of this song so you can kind of get a sense of, of what we're I, talking about. I'm here. dying of anticipation. Okay, great. Rain, rain on my face. Hasn't stopped raining for days. My world is a flood. Slowly I become one with the mud. I vaguely remember that song. Yeah, I'm biased. Oh, okay. I think that's still very, a banger. Very For, big. compared to most contemporary Christian music, <laughs> I think it's yep. it's a hit. Yeah. So so part of the reason why they did have this fair amount of crossover success is mm-hmm. that they were very conscious, actually, early on about not using a lot of really overt Christian language in their okay. music, which you can tell that's in this, smart. right? No mention of God, no mention of Jesus. Yeah. But using imagery from the Bible and stuff like that. And yeah. that, uh, their lead singer actually explained in an interview on uh, NPR, uh, Weekend oh. Edition, mm-hmm. uh, in 2002, kind of talking about that. This conscious choice of that we didn't want to make this really overtly Christian music. One, to appeal to people who were put off by religion, but then also to, quote, love people in a way that isn't exclusive to simply people that understand the language of Christianity. I mean, power power to them. Which I actually think is kind of a beautiful idea. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's good because I don't. Uh, and then, of course, young Jace played this at many times at churches in his youth, you know. Oh, did you sing it? Yeah. Well, this is a popular, oh, is... definitely a popular worship yeah? band yeah. cover yeah, cover band song, cover cover song, band, worship band, worship song, song time. worship band, worship cover band. Yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> nice. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So lots of great memories of of not only listening to this song and loving it, but listening to it and like as a you know, I've, maybe I was like thirteen or something, like trying to figure it out on guitar. I guess it, maybe I was a little older than that when I was trying to play this, but really being into it. Yeah. Well, it was lovely, and I'm glad that maybe it just. It came from many different places, like 69. <laughs> <laughs> Psalm 69. It's come all the way back yes. around. Yes. <laughs> Psalm 69. They heard that. Yeah, they heard that and they were like, this is it. We got to make our own version of what yeah. would, I forget what it was called. It was like, oh, the lilies. Oh, yes. It was, yes. Did he say like, to the tune of the lilies? Oh, Maybe yeah. This is the tune of the lilies, actually. Maybe this is also to the tune of the lilies. Exactly. <laughs> we just never knew. Exactly. Yeah. Amazing. 
Well, uh, as usual, we're going to get into more shenanigans next week with Ezekiel. Maybe by then everyone will have gone to the wayside. Maybe everyone will have died. Or maybe just God is going to continue his, his saying that he's going to kill everyone. And we'll see if that actually happens. I mean, clearly some people lived. Oh, yeah. Obviously, some people are still alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he didn't kill everyone like he said. He just keeps saying that he's going to, but he doesn't actually do it. So I don't know, whatever. Mm. I'm interested to see what happens and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>